And today, I don't say this lightly, today I have been waiting a year and a half to preach today. A year and a half I have been anticipating what we're going to do today. So today I am so excited. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of, Make a mile right here, but internally, all week I'm just going, finally, we are here. So if you would take your Bibles and open to the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. That's okay. Sometimes you forget a Bible. Pastor John's got a couple Bibles back there. Just put your hand up and turn to the second chapter of the Bible. You guys, see, already you're getting used to me. Okay, he's got something going on. In many ways, Exodus is, we need another Bible up here. In many ways, Exodus is the second chapter of the Bible. So turn to Exodus chapter 1. In many ways, Exodus is the second chapter of the Bible. It's like this. For two months, we've been going through looking briefly at Genesis. Genesis lays sovereign foundations. Genesis lays it out. God, in His goodness, in His greatness, creates the world, creates us in His image. He is good. He gives us grace. But we sinned. We failed against His holy plan, His standard. We sinned. Yet in that, there is grace. He makes a promise. He makes a covenant with His people. He wants, what is it? Restoration in the relationship. In that he makes promise, he makes a covenant. He says, I will be faithful, you can trust me. I'm trustworthy. These are sovereign foundations in Genesis. In many ways, Genesis is a prequel to Exodus. So that's why I said turn to chapter 2 in the Bible. Exodus doesn't just stand alone, people. So uh, for a year and a half I've been going, someday I'm going to preach through Exodus. Well, here we are. But to do that, I had to take two months of the prequel. Two months ago, here's the sovereign foundations in Genesis. Remember those bricks? These are the things God lays down saying, I'm trustworthy. I'm the one who's made promises. I made a vow to you, a covenant with you. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. That's the prequel to Exodus. Genesis says, this is what needs to be done. You've sinned. I'm going to make it all right. Guess what? Exodus is when it happens. Exodus is the book. It's beautiful. In fact, in the New Testament, it's this. You look at the New Testament, the whole New Testament looks at the Gospels. In the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament looks at Exodus. So, for five, six months, we're going to go through a little series, little, six months called The Gospel According to Exodus. And we're going to see God's sovereign hand placing people, placing events, showing his mighty acts to say, I am God, and this is how I'm going to save you. And this all points to, and here's the great part, it doesn't stop with chapter 2. It doesn't just stop with Exodus. It all points to the gospel message seen in the cross. So we're going to take some time and look at the book of Exodus. Genesis anticipates Exodus. So you cannot read Exodus just on its own. And I'm excited to get into the unfolding plan of God's redeeming history with you all. So let's pray. 
Father God, you know my excitement about today. But even more, I know that you want us to meet with you. And Lord, as we take time looking through this book, may we not be caught up in the wonders of all these cool events. May we not be caught up just in the certain particular people you chose to use and chose to destroy. May we ultimately be caught up in you. Lord, you've done all these things so that we could come to know you more. And I pray today, as we just get a glimpse of the beginning, our hearts would long to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Exodus. Here's my, seriously, a year ago I got this because for six months I was studying Exodus going, I've got to get into this. In fact, it's really been two years. So I got just this Bible, just so I could say this is my Exodus Bible. I've been studying Exodus out of this Bible. So Exodus chapter 1. And I want to look just kind of at three parts of the beginning of Exodus 1, 1 through 14. Honestly, this may surprise some of you, but this may not surprise many of you. Halfway through the week, I thought I could preach a whole sermon on the first word. Some of you, you don't have that in your Bibles. The first word in Hebrew is and. And these are the names. Now, some of you may have, like the NASB or something says, then or now, these are the names. In the, in the NIV, it says, these are the names. Because it's not just a beginning of a new book. It's a continuation of what God has already done. In fact, as we look at the first couple of verses, we realize that this doesn't just start where Genesis ended. Take a look at the last verse in Genesis. So Joseph died at the age of 110. So Joseph is dead. Exodus really starts in Genesis 46. Why does Exodus start with Genesis 46? It's two things. Number one, it's to remind you, this book that you hold is not just, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story. This is all a continuation of God's plan of redeeming history. It's just not one book, okay, we're done with that book, let's dust that off. They all come together. That's one aspect, saying, hey, Genesis is there, but Exodus is a continuation of that. The second part, which I think is more important, and it's seen here, is this. Genesis lays those foundations, and the first part here in Exodus reminds you of those foundations. Don't forget that. These are the names, take a look at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. So we go back to Genesis 46. This is how God has brought you to Egypt. Don't forget, who got you to Egypt? It wasn't because someone was thrown to a pit who had a colorful jacket of many colors. It wasn't by chance that this happened. It wasn't by chance he met Potiphar and his wife. It wasn't by chance that he had dreams and people had dreams and he wasn't to interpret it. It's all God's sovereign plan. He brought you to Egypt. You're there because of God's plan. Then we have the names of the 12 kids. Look at verse 5. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph 
was already in Egypt. So as you read this, you're like, okay, yeah, I've, we know this. We just went through all of this. There's a connection here. Take a look at verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Let me just say this. I find it very interesting, but not a surprise, because I read a lot, that as a generation goes on, people forget. People are quick to forget. And when we forget history, we begin to fabricate history. We begin to create, well, well, this is probably what it was. Especially with truth. When truth is forgotten, people like to forget it and then fabricate what it should be. For instance, I find this amazing, especially, especially since I love World War II history. I find it amazing that people in high school today do not know who Hitler is. They have, some kids have no idea who Hitler is. And some of you are like, how could that be? Well, they busy themselves with so many things. There's so many other things that seem to be important. People are so easily apt to forget things. They're forgotten, and then things get fabricated. Even as I study World War II history, already people are beginning to fabricate. Well, the concentration camps really weren't as bad as we think they were. You've got to be kidding me. Well, listen, when people forget... They begin to fabricate things. Exodus begins by saying, don't forget your sovereign foundations. That's why I took two months before getting into this saying, God is a God of grace. He's a God who's a creator. He's a God who's all about making vows with you. I'm all about restoration in the relationship. And in that, I'll make promises to you. I'm trustworthy. I'll provide for you. Don't forget that. People forget... And then they begin to fabricate stories. As I was flying back from Wisconsin last week, the gentleman who sat next to me was going to the Packers game. Not the Seahawks game, the Packers game. And, the, and then the gentleman next to me on the other side was also going to the Packers game. And the girl in front of us, well, was on the Packer plane, I guess. He was reading this article, and I said, could I look at that? And maybe some of you have seen this on the news a married Messiah. <gasps> An old piece of writing was just found. And in this old ancient writing, we have the words written, Jesus said to them, My wife. I knew Jesus was married, some people say. Listen, as I said before, people forget, and then when they forget, they fabricate. Now, I study languages. I study a lot the ancient languages. And right away, I could see this is a Coptic. This is probably 4th century. And it says my wife and people are saying, Oh, yes, of course, now we have evidence. It would be like this. Abraham Lincoln lived when? 1800s. It would be as though this. A couple hundred years later, so a couple hundred, like a hundred and some years from now, someone would write a story. Abraham Lincoln, comma, the communist, comma, was a vampire hunter. Okay? And then, thousands of years from that point, people find it and go, I knew he was a vampire hunter! He was a communist! Isn't that ridiculous? 
Well, that's the same thing when I read it. I go, come on, people. People forget and people fabricate. Well, we're not that too far off because even this year came out a movie called Abraham Lincoln, the Vampire Hunter, and boy, what a way to mess with history. But listen, I will do this often as I preach through the gospel according to Exodus. I will do this often as we look through Scripture because Scripture does this often. Do not forget your sovereign foundations. In the midst of your turmoil, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your joy, don't forget who's in control. Don't forget it's all about God. It's not about you. Don't forget and don't fabricate. Many years have passed. Hundreds of years have passed. And at times we'll see that the people have forgotten the sovereign foundations of God. Look at verse 6 again. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But, I love how this is written, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and the land was filled with them. Now honestly, if you get most people in a church, they would just read these first seven verses, they would just go, okay, we got a little history. But for two months we've been going through Genesis saying, this is who God is. He said, I will make you a people. You will be fruitful more than the stars, more than the sand. It's going to happen. They've been waiting. They're very old. They have a child. And then the next wife, she can't have children, but God provides. The next wife comes, she can't have children, but God provides. When we read this church, we just go, yes, of course. Verse 7 should make you go, that is a great verse, because it's happening. God is a God who makes promises, and verse 7 shows it's happening. That's enough to make you just go, wow. That's amazing. Look at verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, greatly strong. You know what? This has such creation language in it. Read the first couple chapters in Genesis and read this verse and you just be like, wow. There's a connection here. And we'll see that throughout Exodus. This connection with creation, the God who's in control, compared to the gods of this world who are nothing. So already we have this. Verse 7. God is in control. The vocabulary is of the creation account. The vocabulary is of the covenant. The growth is in accordance with God's promise. A reminder that He is faithful. Verses 1 through 7 in Exodus 1 refer to the fulfillment of God's promise. That's all good news. I'm glad you're seated because now it's time to sit down and take a look at what comes next. Then, verse 8, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Again, what happens? History goes on, generations go on, things are forgotten, and things become fabricated. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. 
No longer are they recognized in status and relationship. It used to be that the Egyptians had the Israelites and the Israelites helped them. Look at Joseph. Look at all these. He was second in command. Look at all that they've done for us. But history has gone on. They've forgotten the prior relationship, commitment, and agreements. It would be like this. Imagine working for a boss for 20 years. Let's say you're a mechanic. You're a grease monkey. You just kind of do some stuff. He's got this great shop. He's got some hoist. He's got all the tools. And you know this guy. He's a great man. He's a great boss to work for. You work a lot. You do some stuff. And whenever you have issues, your car breaks down. He's got this unwritten agreement saying, listen, anytime you need to, Come in the shop when we don't have other cars. You can use the tools. You're a good employee. You can use our stuff. Not a problem at all. Then you get a new boss. You got to work on your brakes like I need to work on. You pull your car in the shop like you have been for 20 years. You pull in and you start working. The new boss walks in and goes, What are you doing? These are my tools. You can't touch this stuff. And you get fired. How quickly things can be forgotten. And that's what we have here in this case. A new king comes into power. A new king comes and has forgotten all the things that was already there. Something must be done. And I wrote this down, church. Listen to this. He thinks something must be done. He thinks a new plan comes in place. But listen, when people... Come up and create a plan against God's will. Please listen to this. God will not be silent in that. God will not be silent. And think of that as you think, as our elections are coming up, as world continues, as all these world events come up, and you think, oh, is God, what, what does God do? Is He not there? Listen, God will not be silent. Amen? That's the God I follow, and we'll see this in the book of Exodus in a powerful way. God always responds to the plans of man. Like I said, I've been studying this Bible for, I've had this for a year, but for a year and a half I've been doing Exodus, almost two years. I've kind of underlined stuff in my Bible. I'm going to read through this once, and then I'll just say the words I've underlined. Okay, let's look at verse 11 through 14. Take a look in your Bibles, I'll read it once, and I'm just going to read out loud the words I have underlined. So, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor, with brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Listen to the words I have underlined. Slave. Oppressed. Forced. Oppressed. Dread. Worked. Ruthlessly. Bitter. Hard labor, hard labor, work ruthlessly just in those few verses. 
there's a drastic change in what is happening in history with the people. There is pain and suffering. I mean, we see this even historically. People find new cave paintings where they have Egyptians slaving, working, pictures with kind of those art pictures. Maybe you've seen those in school. They got those little paintings in the pyramids with whips, suffering, pain, bitter, hard labor. I'm not speaking about your job description. This is how it was for them. Crushed. Here's some of the definitions of these. They were crushed, worn down, humbled to the effect of being put down, forced someone into submission, oppressed, the desire to wear them down in harsh conditions. Not only does it get bad, it gets worse, and it intensifies for them. This is tough. This is hard. I thought God was going to make them all the stars, all the sand. It's supposed to be beautiful. You'll be blessed. People bless you, bless you. How can these verses even be? Remember. That's why I believe that we have, Exodus doesn't just begin with Exodus like, oh, pain and suffering. Exodus begins with going, remember Genesis 46. God is sovereign. He's in control. He brought you here. He multiplied. It's, it's, it's okay. There's pain, suffering, shrewdly, hard labor. In this, the people need deliverance. They need deliverance. It's hard. It's, it's tough. They cannot do it. But they need deliverance. Here is how the enemy of God worked. Listen to this. First, what the king did is they took away their identity. Listen to how he does this. He focuses on their identity. Takes away their identity. Now you're slaves. You used to be someone important. You used to be able to go to stores with. You used to be helpful to us. Now he takes away their identity and they are slaves. He changes their position and enslaves them. Number two, second, is isolation. He's trying to reduce their numbers. Don't multiply. Reduce their numbers. First, it's focus on identity. Then, isolation. Being forsaken and abandoned. And the third thing he does is irritation. Inflicts pain on them. Pain and suffering. You know what? The enemy of our souls does the same thing. Tries to focus on your identity take away who you really are in Christ. Then, isolate you. You're all alone. You're meant to do this alone. Remember, for months, months ago, I have saying, you were not meant to live your life alone. We have to be the body. We have to work together as a church. You're not meant to do this alone. Oh, he, the enemy of your souls will work on thinking you're, all, you're supposed to be alone. And then, pain and suffering. Irritation. And in the midst of circumstances, you throw up your hands. You've heard me say this before, and I'll say this again. Do not let circumstances dictate how you worship. Instead, let worship, your understanding of God, dictate how you live in your circumstances. It's exactly what the enemy doesn't want you to do. The enemy wants you to take a look at your... Look, listen to these words. How many of you have this in your life? Slave, oppressed, force, oppressed, dread, ruthless, work, bitter, hard labor... Your circumstances can make you just go, oh, why? 
Don't let your circumstances dictate how you worship. Instead, let worship dictate how you live in your circumstances. I have these lines underlined, but I have one word circled in here. Right in the middle of these words is this one word. It's in the middle of verse 12. Multiplied. Even in the midst of pain. Even in the midst of suffering. Even in their, their just, oh, this is horrible, I'm enslaved. God's promise is still happening. See, if you haven't read Genesis, you just read that verse and go multiplied going, oh, more people, more pain. Great, Lord, thank you. But we just went through Genesis. When we see that word multiplied, we go, God is still working. Look out, people. He's multiplying. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. But the circumstances can trip some of you up. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing. And he understands what life is like where there's hard suffering, pain, work, people around being bitter. And some of you have families like that. Some of you are trying to get away from families like that. Some of you have work like that. Some of you have brought sorrow upon yourself because of the sin that so easily entangles you. And if you listen to the enemy of your soul, you will be crushed and defeated because you let circumstances dictate how you worship. Instead, if you let worship dictate how you live in your circumstances, this is how you will be. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see, when we have Christ, when we know our position in Christ, the enemy cannot touch our identity. Amen? He can't do anything about our identity. I'm I'm found in Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. You can't touch that. He cannot mess with isolation because I'm in the body of Christ. I'm connected. I'm a part of the body of Christ. I am not alone. Amen? And when pain and suffering comes, God is sovereign. He's in control. We know these things. Oh, I might be in pain and suffering, but I will not be crushed because I understand who God is. So where is God in the midst of all of this? (laughs) You notice that his name doesn't even show up. What's going on here? Even though God is not mentioned and pain and suffering will get worse, he is there. Just because he's not mentioned does not mean he is not active. Listen to this. Just because you go through a week and it's just kind of pain, how many of you had a phone call where you on the phone and you had to raise your voice or you caught pain in your heart? How many of you had to deal with someone this week where you just face them and you're just like, oh, where are you, God? Just because you don't see the lightning bolts coming and zapping them away, which maybe you pray, does not mean that God is not active in your life. Just like in these words, we have right in the middle, the word I circled, multiplied. He's active. He's doing it. He is there. 
It's not more people, more suffering. God is fulfilling His promise. Listen to this, and if you could write this down, remember this. The Lord will work and rule despite appearances. The Lord will work and rule despite appearances. Even though life can just go to hell in a handbag, as some people would say, God's rule and His work will happen despite appearances. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about to show us all. But today, these words may be apparent in your life. And you may resound with a common theme of pain. Maybe some of you feel like, yeah, the enemy's messing with my identity. I feel isolated, and I'm just irritated, all this pain and suffering. What am I to do? You may ask questions, where is God? Why does he let these things happen? Where are you? Listen, I guarantee you, this book does not have the title Chicken Soup for the Soul. As cute as that book is, and some of you have it, and I've read parts of it, and I just kind of go, oh. Listen, this book does not give cotton candy to cancer patients. This book gives life to people who are dying. And in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your weary, in the midst of your, okay, God, I need real answers, it's not going to be chicken soup for the soul. It's not going to go, you have lemons? Let's make lemonade. Because some of you don't have lemons. You have nightmares. You have the enemy crouched at your back door and you do not know what to do. And you look and you go, God, where are you? You're, you're supposed to be here. I need you. And this is what I've been taught. Remember this. I have been taught to apply biblical truth to the apparent absence of God's hand. Listen to this again. I have been taught to apply biblical truth to the appearance of God's absent hand. Where are you, Lord? Look at this. Turn to Psalm 73. Right in the middle is the book of Psalm. Psalm 73. You are not alone in this. The Israelites, when the Egyptians came... We'll see throughout all of Scripture, they're not the only ones. Even in the book of Revelation, you'll see this. Apply biblical truth to the apparent absence of God's hand. Look, this is so great. Because this is just straight up, here's what it is. Look at verse 1. Surely, you know, Psalms, these are so beautiful. You want to get Pastor John to start singing this one to us, and we all clap our hands. Surely God is good to Israel. Yes? Yes, right? Is that truth? Yes. To those who are pure in heart. Yes, praise God. But, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Oh, what am I going to do? God, you're supposed to be with us. Oh, praise God. But look at me. I'm in this pain and suffering and, oh. He doesn't stop there. Where does he find his pain relief medicine? He doesn't find that. He finds the cure. 
Look at verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Oh, this is great. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. People, listen. Most of your problems, I've said this before, most of the problems you face is because of an incorrect view of God. If you understood who God was in the beauty of His holiness, in the greatness of His righteousness, in His hand of peace and judgment, you would live through your circumstances and go, God's in control. He's sovereign. And I will live a life worthy of the calling I've received. In the midst of His pain, He enters in the house of the Lord and that's where He finds not just pain relief medicine, but the cure. God Himself. God himself. He turns to God in the midst of turmoil. But just as the Israelites in chapter 1 have suffering, what do they do? Some of this leads to death. What do they do? Listen, we need a power outside of ourselves to intervene, even in your own joy. You need a power outside of yourself to intervene in the midst of your desperation. You need a deliverer. Go back to Exodus chapter 1 and turn to the last part of chapter 2. For a couple weeks, we're just going to look at chapters 1 and 2. For some of you, you like to read with me as I go. So for the next couple weeks, your homework assignment is to read Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Read it a couple times, get a Bible, underline things like Pastor Cody does, get the big picture. In the midst of their suffering, (laughs) this is it. Here is where we end today. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and cried out. I've got those underlined. There's pain and suffering going on. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. You better have this underlined someday in your Bible. God heard their groaning. And He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They turn to God in prayer. They need deliverance. So they say, God, we cry out to you. Here we are. We need help. So what are we to do? We are to do the same thing. So I'm going to say this line a couple times and put some examples with this. When you have a need, present that need to the Lord. If you have a need, don't try to figure it out on your own. Don't try to do it. Don't try to work through your schemes. This week, I almost pray that something happens in your life. Did Pastor Cody just pray for suffering in your life? I pray that something breaks so that way your first knee-jerk reaction isn't like, oh, let me fix it. Your first reaction is, okay, stop. Lord, I present this need to you. Show me your work, power, and beauty. 
God will do it. If you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? When you have a need, present that need to the Lord. Listen to these verses. Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Listen to Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord. When you have a need, present those needs to the Lord in prayer. I've learned a lot about prayer in life, and I've learned from people who've gone before us. Listen to some of these lines from people like Oswald Chambers. Um, I think I have Augustine in here, Luther. Some of the great men and women who've gone before us, listen to these words. Because some of you, when you have needs, you're just going to go like, okay, Lord, here's my penny. I flip it in the wishing well. It's not like that. Listen to this. Prayer is not an exercise. It is the life of the saints. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Present your needs to the Lord. That's what they did in the end of chapter 2. He who fails to pray, pray does not cheat God. He cheats himself. The value of consistent prayer is not that he will hear us, but that we will hear him. And for some of you this week, when the issues come up, it's time to just zip your lips, as my mom would always say, zip it, and be quiet and wait on the Lord. Because some of you just want to blab, blab, blab. It's not that we would have him wake up, Lord, help us out, but that we would hear him. There is a mighty lot of difference between saying prayers and praying. Here's one of my favorites. When you are sick, fast and pray. If the language is hard to learn, fast and pray. If people will not hear you, fast and pray. When you have nothing to eat, fast and pray. Men may spurn your appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Amen? If we are weak in prayer, we are weak everywhere. Let me say that again. If you're weak in prayer, you are weak everywhere. In your needs, present your request to the Lord. This is what I did when I was in college. I had a lot of pain and suffering. Some of you have needs. I'm not talking just simple needs like Cody needs to wear a tie to cover up his shirt because he's missing a button. So he puts a tie on. I've got a need. This tie isn't the best. Why do I use duct tape to keep that back flap on? See, now you're realizing that's why Cody dressed up today. I'm not talking those kind of needs. Or you need to score a touchdown so you catch the guy who catches the football to get a touchdown. I'm talking real needs. Some of you have grandchildren who are desperately in trouble. And as a grandparent, you just you feel like you want to intervene, but there's nothing you can do. Some of you have needs, financial needs yourself. Some of you have spiritual, physical, emotional needs. What do you do? Present them to the Lord. So when I was in college, this is what I did. I got some paper, and I got a little ring, and I just made prayer requests on my rings. In fact, this is what I did. I made, mon- I made seven cards. Monday was missionaries. 
made it simple. Wednesday was worship. Friday was family. That's kind of how I remember the other days I put different things on. So here's what I did. I, I had Monday was missionaries. I just flipped through my card, wrote a bunch of missionaries down. That was my prayer time. Had my needs there. Any needs, I'd write them down. Tuesday was confession. That was my big day of going, okay, Lord, I've, I've failed. I keep failing. Here I am. Here's all my needs. I confess that I keep doing it on my own. Forgive me. Tuesday was a very important day for me. Wednesday was worship, because prayer is worship. Prayer is focusing on the attributes of God and claiming those and saying, yes, you are God, you are great, thank you. Because I don't let circumstances dictate how I worship. Instead, I let worship dictate how I live in my circumstances. Thursday was, Lord, be with the people I work with. Be with my friends. May I be a witness. Help the people around me. Friday, I prayed for my family. Had all their names on, just prayed for each of them. Saturday, I began to pray for church. Get my heart right, get church right. Because honestly, Saturday night is when, in Asia, they're worshiping. So Saturday was my day of prayer for church. Sunday, another one of worship. So I had my prayer card. Some of you need to start writing your stuff out and saying, God, here's my needs. I put them in my pocket. I'll carry them with me. I'm at the stoplight. Here I go. Pray for that. Yep, pray for that. Here's my needs. Here's my needs. Today, I don't have this method. I don't have five cards, seven cards for each day of the week. Instead, I have this packet right here. You know what's on here? Steve, Lila, Chelsea, Tony and Jackie, John and Son, Gaylord, Paul and Julie, Tim and Cindy, Pat Kennedy, Terry, Gordy, I have your names. Why? Because I'm your pastor. If you go to a Spanish country, what's the title for a pastor? El pastor. It's the same word for them as shepherd. So really, as your pastor, I'm your shepherd. Really, I'm the under-shepherd. He's the shepherd. And I have this written down because this is very serious to me. With the title comes the task of presenting and promoting your needs and interests before the Lord. So for me, it's a privilege to pray for Don and Linda, Meryl, all of you on this list. My job is to present your needs, your affairs before the Lord. Don't worry, I just have your names. I don't have all your issues. In case I drop this and little Cavi picks it up and passes them out to everyone. And then, whoa! Ted, I didn't know that was going on in your life. Whoa! Present your needs before the Lord. He is waiting for His children to come. God wants your best interest and is concerned about you. And that doesn't always mean comfort. Because he's, I said this before, he's more interested not in preserving your comfort, but developing your character. So pray. Lay these out before the Lord, and he will listen. Rich is the person who has a praying friend. So I ask you, pray for each other. Pray for the needs that you have. He is willing. He is 
ready. In the midst of trouble, may you see the word multiplied. May you, like the Israelites, in their suffering, in their slavery, just cry out to the Lord and say, God, here I am. Help me. I've only said read Exodus 1 and 2. But if you're antsy, read the rest, and you will see His mighty hand of deliverance because they need a deliverer. And today, you need a deliverer. And all of this points to the cross. All of this points to the ultimate deliverance found in Jesus. And some of you, again, need to turn your hearts, abandon your hearts to the delivering hand of God found in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to pray out of a book that's on my desk because I need to learn to pray for you. It's called A Pastor Prays for His People. This is written by an old, old gentleman, a collection of his prayers that he'd pray before his congregation. So let me end with part of his prayer. So let's pray. Glorious God, wonderful Savior, we turn to you believing that you are more ready to hear than we are inclined to pray. Your invitation to us holds no exclusions. You have not limited your access to your presence by certain hours, certain days, or certain circumstances. The Apostle Peter assures us that God watches over his people. He hears their prayers. Lord, we believe this to be true. And yet we are appalled at our neglect. Facing overwhelming difficulties and reaching in desperation, we have turned elsewhere in our need. To our friends, teachers, lawyers, government, we talk to anyone, anywhere, what we think might solve our problems. All the while, your word, your word should get our attention. No good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. So Lord, we turn to you now. We say, Lord, here's our heart, here's our life, here's our needs, here's our family, here's my future. Your sovereign, help us, because we are in desperate need today. In Jesus' name, amen.